through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings and welcome to the 20th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, December 7th, 2017. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement. Today's podcast looks at women in music from a feminist perspective. We will hear interview segments with Farron, a monumental lesbian guitar player, songwriter, and singer, Bitch from the band Bitch and Animal, and Brenna and Melanie, two members of the Pennsylvania feminist punk band Bleeders. In addition, the commentary comes to us from Thistle Pedersen, WLRN's resident musical artist. Before we dive into today's discussion of women in music, here's Sekhmet Shiawal with the headlines for Thursday, December 7th, 2017. A slew of men have been outed as sexual predators since the Harvey Weinstein case broke in October, the list growing longer by the day as more and more women name their harassers, assaulters, and rapists. This list includes director Brett Ratner, actor Kevin Spacey, TV host Matt Lauer, journalist Mark Halperin, musician Twiggy Ramirez, former president of the United States George H.W. Bush, actor Dustin Hoffman, former NPR editor Michael Oreskes, former New York Times political correspondent Glenn Thrush, actor Steven Seagal, actor Ed Westwick, comedian Louis C.K., screenwriter and director Matthew Weiner, actor George Takei, actor Tom Sizemore, showrunner Mark Schwann, actor Jeffrey Tambor, Democratic Senator Al Franken, actor Sylvester Stallone, show host Charlie Rose, and former pop star Nick Carter. The accusations, most of them made by women, range from sexual harassment to child molestation to rape. Most of the men have been since fired or suspended from their most recent positions. Michael Hafford, a self-proclaimed male feminist who previously wrote a column for Broadly, Vice's site for women, has been accused by multiple women of sexual assault, rape, and battery. Hafford's column was called Male Feminist Here. Surprising no one, several female journalists who have worked for Vice reported that the popular media outlet run and geared toward men has a toxic workplace culture of sexual harassment. Roy Moore, Republican candidate for the Alabama Senate, has been accused by multiple women of sexually preying on and assaulting them when they were underage and he was in his 30s. None accuse him of rape. Moore denies the allegations and has refused to drop out of the race for the state Senate seat. 
He goes up against Democratic candidate Doug Jones in a special election on December 12th. He was recently endorsed by the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress. Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, an organization of current and former farm-working Latina women, released a statement of solidarity with the women in the media industry who have experienced sexual abuse in the workplace. In the letter, they mention their own experiences of sexual abuse in the agricultural industry. Massage Envy, a U.S.-based corporation, faces over 180 separate accusations of sexual abuse by former female clients. 223 women signed a letter exposing the sexual harassment from men they experienced while working in the U.S. national security field. A French jury acquitted a man who raped and impregnated an 11-year-old black girl when he was 22 in 2009. The defense argued that the rape was consensual. 26 African girls between the ages of 14 and 18 were found dead in the Mediterranean Sea by Italian authorities. The autopsies confirmed drowning as cause of death. The International Organization for Migration believes the girls may have been murdered by human traffickers working for European pimps. More than 80% of Nigerian women who fled to Italy in the first half of 2016 were likely sold into prostitution. The organization Human Rights Watch released a report on the sexual violence Rohingya Muslim women experience at the hands of the Burmese military. Rape and sexual assault, including gang rape of Rohingya women and girls, is a widespread form of terrorism committed by Burmese security forces in their campaign to drive the Rohingya population out of Buddhist-majority Burma. The United Nations and other groups have recently suggested that this campaign amounts to genocide and ethnic cleansing. Reddit finally banned the group incels from the website for promoting physical and sexual violence toward women. Self-described incels are involuntarily celibate men who hate and resent women for not giving them sex. These men have long advocated raping and killing women, and some have discussed becoming transgender as a solution to their sexual frustration. A black butch lesbian named Sabrina Hooks was badly beaten by five men in a Los Angeles fast food restaurant. Miss Hooks was with her girlfriend, Morgan, at the time. The LAPD is investigating the assault as a hate crime. Miss Hooks is raising money to pay for her medical and dental bills. You can donate at GoFundMe.com slash Sabrina-Hooks-Hate-Crime. 34-year-old Christopher Tucker murdered 19-year-old Tara Serino for rejecting his marriage proposal. Tucker claims that Tara was his friend. He choked her until she was unresponsive, then gouged out her eyes, snapped her neck, and used a hatchet and 25-pound weight plate to ensure she was dead. Tucker confessed to police, and Tara's body was found wrapped in a rug inside Tucker's home. 19-year-old Liam Madigan, who now claims to be a woman and goes by the name Lily, was elected the women's officer for the UK Labour Party's Rochester and Strood and Kent branch. Prior to winning the election, he called for Anne Rosilo, a butch lesbian, to be fired from her former position as women's officer in a different Labour Party constituency because she openly criticized trans activism. This inspired trans activists to harass Ms. Rosilo online, which eventually led to Rosilo's resignation and the executive committee of her party branch also resigning to protest her mistreatment. Since becoming women's officer, Madigan has applied to the Joe Cox Women in Leadership Program, named after the female member of parliament who was murdered last year by a man. On November 12th, The Guardian reported that tens of thousands of Polish nationalists had marched through Warsaw to mark Poland's Independence Day. The crowd was mostly male, although outlets did note the presence of some women and heterosexual families. Many marchers carried banners supporting far-right groups such as National Radical Camp. 
Members of the crowd lit red smoke flares and held up banners which read, White Europe of Brotherly Nations, Pure Poland, White Poland, Refugees Get Out, Catholic Poland Not Secular, and Death to Enemies of the Homeland. Poland has refused to take in refugees because of concerns about people from Muslim backgrounds being security risks, and fewer than 1% of the Polish population is Muslim. News Mavens, a Polish all-female journalism offshoot supported by Google's Digital News Initiative Fund, reported some marchers also carried banners that read, Pedophiles, Lesbians, Gays, Poland is Laughing at You, and Smack the Red Hooligan, Once with a Sickle, Once with a Hammer. Lida Demanska from anti-fascist Warsaw said there were around 5,000 counter-demonstrators altogether, with groups such as Warsaw Women's Strike and Citizens of the Polish Republic brought together under an alliance called Anti-Fascist Coalition. An all-women group was kicked, pushed, and screamed at by the nationalists after holding up a banner that said, Fascism Stop, and chanting, Away with Fascism. Organizers of the National March claimed their demonstration was both patriotic and peaceful. From the stage, one organizer called out to the crowd, quote, We are fighting a culture war. It's a war against God, against the homeland and honor, which they want to take away from us, end quote. Lita Demanska said the real danger is that since the 2015 election, which saw success for the right-wing Law and Justice Party, quote, Fascists have put on suits and entered the lower chamber of parliament. The media is filled with right-wing propaganda. The discourse has shifted towards views which only a few years back would have been unequivocally labeled as fascist and racist, end quote. The Venezuelan Supreme Court of Justice ruled in favor of two women who filed a complaint against the sports magazine El Geraldo for publishing pornographic material and decided that both private and public media in Venezuela will be prohibited from airing and publishing explicit and implicit sexual content. The court's ruling explains that pornographic content is, quote, a violation of the right to human dignity and the right of women to have a decent life, unquote. Warrior Sisters, the women's self-defense group, is raising money until January 1st. The funds will go toward their goal of hiring their first paid part-time staff members. The Eugene, Oregon-based group offers free self-defense training to women and has expanded to other cities in the U.S. since their 2013 founding. Donate to Warrior Sisters at fundraiser.com slash warriorsisters2017 and receive a gift when you give $25 or more. The Women's Liberation Front, or WOLF, just announced the names of their new board of directors. They are Natasha Chart, Jennifer Chavez, Emma Spaulding, Kara Dansky, Tanya Kehoe, Charlotte Mountain, and Deborah Chubb. Wolf is the only organization fighting legal battles in the United States regarding gender identity legislation that specifically stands up for girls and women. You may reach the Wolf Board of Directors by visiting their website at womensliberationfront.org. In addition, several Wolf members are involved in an effort to kill the bill council member David Grosso is pushing. The bill, if passed, would decriminalize prostitution in Washington, D.C., harming the women of D.C. and putting the women of Maryland and Virginia at risk of being trafficked into D.C. for prostitution purposes.
when I raised my hand, I stood at the window. The darkness was my bane. But suddenly a sunbeam thrilled me to my weary heart. It was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. I knew I had to keep my love, keep my love alive, keep my love, keep my love alive. That song was Love Alive by the band Heart off their 1977 album Little Queen. The following clip was taken from an interview WLRN's Julia Beck did with Brenna and Melanie from Bleeders, a gash rock band. According to their gash rock manifesto, quote, Gash rock is a radical new form of sonic vaginal discharge. It is only produced by the most man-hating cunts on the planet. Upon oral contact, gash rock typically results in one of two reactions. Some individuals may experience feelings of euphoria, catharsis, sisterhood, and righteous indignation. Others may experience feelings of fear, confusion, discomfort, emasculation, or blind rage. Gash rockers oppose macho hardcore culture. Gash rockers oppose ideological totalitarianism and the silencing of shrill female voices. Gash rockers are true freaks and outcasts who will never be accepted by the misogynist, homophobic, racist mainstream. Gash rockers fight for love, justice, logic, and the liberation of the female sex. Gash rockers know gender to be a system of ritualized dominance and submission that must be ultimately destroyed. Unquote. Bleeders is not interested in driving three hours to play your faux-feminist, pro-porn, anti-lesbian benefit shows and then getting yelled at afterwards. They are anti-rape, anti-cool, and pro-woman. You went on tour recently, and I really want to hear about how that went. Well, the first night we played at this anarchist collective in Worcester, Massachusetts. We did shows at bars and a basement and three shows in Massachusetts and then like a couple in New York. It's all kind of a blur to me. The one night I actually got yelled at. I do remember that. <laughs> I got yelled at because I dumped my period, my diva cup, into the toilet at this church we were playing at before we performed. And it was clogged, so I couldn't flush it. And then the one woman who I guess was running the space yelled at me for that, and I had to clean it up. And then the one show we played at a bar, this one woman kicked me. Do you often face audiences like that? 
not to that degree. Like, that was the only time I've ever been kicked by someone while I was performing. But, you know, we play a lot of these hyper-liberal spaces and stuff where people are into liberal feminism and just react with hostility and suspicion to what we're doing because you're not supposed to talk about periods. <laughs> um, you aren't supposed to say things like, I hate men. You aren't supposed to get off stage and walk around and (laughs) look and yell at people in the face, but it's all part. We're interactive. You know, usually people, if they have a problem with it, you can tell, but they won't say anything to you, but then they'll, like, smear you on the internet or something or message you an angry, hateful message or something like that. It's not really a big deal, but it is annoying. Haters are our motivators. It's good that we're getting, like, some sort of reaction. Like, just going to so many shows, you see so many bands that are so, like, mediocre and boring. Like, I'd rather be someone who makes people, like, really upset or delighted. That's the other thing. Even though we get so much of that, even if there's one woman at a show who's just really into it, that just makes us really happy. How did you first get involved with with music? I started just messing around with computer programs and stuff like that when I was in high school and then I met our bass player Matt in high school and we started jamming together and we became really good friends and then we went to the same college with another guy who's our guitar player and his name is Kay. They started a band together the two of them with these two other guys And then when that band ended, we started jamming together. And at first, Bleeders was just me, Matt, and Kay. Then Matt, who was actually the drummer at the time, uh, he encouraged me to start playing drums. It was just like last year, just saw my friends playing this awesome band. So I thought maybe I could do something with that. Brenna and Kay encouraged me through all that. But yeah, I'm glad I stuck with it. And now I'm the only drummer because Matt's playing bass. I don't think that... It's any secret that it's hard for women to get into, like, the world of music. And we're not encouraged to express ourselves. And we're encouraged to be hypercritical of everything we do. And totally. I think these boys can start these, like, shitty punk bands or whatever. And, like, everyone's into it. I think women are really hard on ourselves. And don't think we have anything. And people are really hard on women. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why we're hard on ourselves. It's been so good to be in a band because it helps build confidence. The both of us, I think, really have made a lot of progress with that, and we couldn't have really done it without our friends. Yeah, I'm glad our male bandmates are so receptive to feminism and will listen to us and not just like think they know everything. How does the creative process happen? When there's men, the things that you create, your recent album is We Hate Men. So how <laughs> how did that process happen when there are men in your band? I write all of the lyrics. I just started expressing myself. You know, my lyrics are all about feminism and stuff just because that's what I would be passionate about, I guess. Matt and Kay are both really good guys. You know, they're really amazing people. They both are supportive of radical feminism. They don't dictate things to us. We're all, like, in it together. When they interrupt us or something when we're talking, they'll apologize and 
keep themselves in check. I think all of us being aware of the gender dynamics and trying to account for them is how we uh, navigate that. I I feel as though the bar is set so low. (laughs) But (laughs) the fact that they do meet that bar and they do work with you, and you said that they, you know, they check themselves, that's really important. Yeah, it's great. It's it's really rare, but it's sad. <laughs> I don't think it's that hard to be like a decent person, but for a lot of men, it, it seems to be a struggle. Well, your recent album is titled We Hate Men, and I am a big fan. I do have to ask, though, is it true? We definitely do. We hate men as a class. You know, there are individual men, I think, in almost every woman's life that they love and care about. So we hate men as a sex class, as the oppressors. The lyrics are pretty self-explanatory about the point of that song. The first verse is, yeah, I hate men, yeah, it's true. Well, no, wait. (laughs) (laughs) You would hate men if it happened to you. Yeah, I hate all the evil things they do, like rape and abuse and harassment, too. Why would you not hate men? And then the other thing is, why would you deny that you hate men? There are so many women, you know, liberal feminists, who I guess are more concerned with convincing men that we're not threatening. I think that feminism should be threatening, because otherwise, what's the point? It should be threatening to male power. I think people really appreciate, like, our raw emotion, but they're always, like, a little, like, uh, intimidated by how direct we are. Yeah, you know, we're not one of those bands that's going to list all these different oppressions and phobias and try to de-gender our language to be as inclusive as possible. Just, like, list things to prove how enlightened you are prove how like virtuous and informed you are instead of actually trying to address problems in like material ways yeah Yeah. i think it's important to be direct and saying it's it's okay to hate men because look at all these evil things they do to to women and to men and to the planet because you have to acknowledge it in order to do anything about it a movement for everyone is a movement for no one the the goal of like the liberal identity politics seems to make so like women can only talk about their own like subjective experience and not like apply that to a larger context. But we're fifty percent of the population and we have common experiences and I think that's that's important. It's okay to say that. Whenever I have my period, I offer the audience I ask them if any of them want to drink my period blood out of my Luna cup. And sometimes they will and sometimes they're like, Ew, no, I'm not doing that. So then I'll drink it. (laughs) Periods are really important because they symbolize a rejection of patriarchy from both the right and the left. Because men on the right want to exploit us for our reproductive labor, and men on the left want to exploit us for our sexual labor. When you have your period, that means that there's a loss of a potential pregnancy. And it's also like, ew, that's gross. It's not sexy. And I started doing this, I started drinking my period blood at shows because I heard that that was something that women did during the second wave. And I thought that was really neat because I think period stigma is related to the core of our oppression as female people. 
you should love your period. It's really powerful that a woman can bleed for a week and not die. And I think men are afraid of it. Was your intention with this album to make it okay to say we hate men? This is kind of the only thing that I can write music about. I don't know that we had a conscious intention so much as just doing what feels right. It feels good. It feels good to say, I hate men. (laughs) It feels so good when we go play a show and we get the whole audience screaming, I hate men. Hopefully you're blazing a trail so that other women can do what you're doing. So that other women can say this and perform this way without being kicked out of shows. Yeah, I hope so. It's hard. You have to, like, try to find people that aren't going to fold to, like, trolls or whoever is saying that we shouldn't be able to play our music in front of people. We would like to find any other, like, feminist musicians out there and help them out with our connections. Definitely, we encourage any woman who wants to talk about her politics to do that on a stage if she wants to. Get in touch. It's important for us to network with other people who are sympathetic to our cause. It's really cool to have friends all over the country. Yeah, I think um, my favorite thing about being a musician is just going to the shows and playing the shows. I love live music. Dancing to live music is my favorite thing in the world. So I was going to many shows for years before I could be like on the other side of that energy exchange that exists between the audience and the musicians. Do you have a favorite musician or artist or band that you really like to listen to? When I first started singing in Bleeders, I think I was really influenced by Riot Girl bands, Bikini Kill and Bratmobile. Since we went to Ohio Lesbian Fest, me and Melanie have also gotten really into like Alex Dobkin, Chris Williamson, lesbian folk music. That stuff yeah, is great. really, really cool. I didn't know that stuff existed. My favorite bands are probably like Mr. Bungle and the Melvin. But I also really like folk music. Yeah, Alex Dobkin, who's Mila Carpio, are favorites. The musicians that I used to listen to so frequently were all men until I went to a women's festival. And I found out that there is this whole plethora of women musicians and lesbian musicians that I didn't even know mm-hmm. existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like they get no airtime. No yeah, airtime whatsoever. So, it makes me so mad because, like, what if I never would have heard that? Yeah, I would encourage all of your listeners to go to a women's festival or a women's music festival because nothing like that that I've been to is, has been such an experience of finding something that I didn't know I needed. Is there anyone out there who really inspires you? Uh, Brenna inspires me. (laughs) Like, look at her. She's awesome. Like, she she wasn't (laughs) in a band before. (laughs) And now she's just, like, ripping it up like she owns the place. Um, (laughs) Yeah, her and, like, Alex Dobkin. What? You inspire me, Melanie. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) One of the things that Melanie did one time really inspired me. Beyond music, one of our friends was self-conscious about her chin hairs. The next time I saw Melanie, she had her chin hairs grown out. And she <laughs> said, oh, I grew them out because our friend said that she was self-conscious about hers. And that just makes me so happy and makes me love her so much. 
but she just cares so much and loves women so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for our, our listeners who are mostly radical feminists and lesbians? I'm just so happy that you're out there and that you're listening. I hope you get in touch. If you're involved in the DIY scene especially, let's form an alliance. It's just good to know you exist. And if you're not in a band, maybe it's something that you have an interest in doing and you should definitely do it because it's easy and anyone can do it. Get involved. Totally. I echo all of that. Feminism that recognizes women's bodies, your blood, it's so important.
Next, we'll hear a clip from an interview that Thistle Pedersen did with Bitch of the performance art and musical group Bitch and Animal. Thistle asked Bitch about her influences, how she chose her name, the messages in her music, and her experiences performing Pussy Manifesto, where it came from, and what it was like performing at Mitchfest. Can you talk about Pussy Manifesto and how it came about and where it started and how the response has been to that? Monumental song, Anthem for Women. Yeah, it was actually that same summer. Um, That summer in P-Town always feels like a big, you know, turning point for, I mean, mean, Animal and I always reference that as a big turning point in our lives. I think also just uh, living in a artist community, you know. I mean, obviously New York is too, but being in a smaller town and a town ruled by the, the gays, Anyway, it was that summer that we were there and, you know, we were having this momentum playing this free show every night or every Sunday night. One of my really good friends from acting school, her name's Anne, who's a great feminist, she always brought up this concept to me about how people use the word balls, you know, to describe this kind of like courage. And they always use the word pussy to describe something weak. And, you know, that was always, just always stuck with me. And, you know, Animal, with all of her genius, at some point was like, bitch, you've got to write the Pussy Manifesto. And that was a lot of how Animal and I worked together, was Animal kind of had the big, broad vision, and then I would, you know, kind of hammer out the details and the specifics. So we announced that summer, you know, we will be unveiling the Pussy Manifesto at this and this time. And we did a whole concert around unveiling it. And it was born. Yeah. And you, so you didn't play it first at Mishfest. You played it in P-Town. Yep. The first unveiling of it was in P-Town at the Schoolhouse Gallery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how was the reception? I think that song, I think... I mean, it was huge. You know, people were obviously very affected by it. I kind of always thought, you know, with any with any work that you write, you never really know, you know, there's only you in a room kind of thing. And then once you put it in front of an audience, it speaks so much, you know. In my mind, I didn't even think of it as a song. I thought of it as a manifesto. Like, I pictured it being a book, which is part of the reason why Animal and I never put it on an album except for it's a it's the secret bonus track like we just always thought it was like weird to even call it a song <laughs> but you know we were coming from a theater background we didn't even in the beginning of our career like we didn't even think of ourselves as musicians we thought of ourselves as performance artists so then when we started touring with Ani you know people would refer to us as a band or as musicians <laughs> we just always thought that was so weird <laughs> But, you know, totally negating my entire life that I had been a trained musician. It's that kind of, like, disconnect I feel like I've always had, like, where, you know, you can just kind of forget 
a whole element of yourself because it's being framed in a new context, which I, I don't know if that's a girl disease or just my specific issues. Anyway, so people love the song. I think, you know, it was shocking. It was like nothing anybody had ever heard. And, you know, I had a whole trip around the word motherfucker, too. You know, it's a document about reclaiming words. So it it approaches the word pussy. It approaches the word balls. And instead of using the word balls, let's say eggs. And also I saw the word motherfucker as a reclaiming because it's also something you hear, you know, it's a female. I, I always analyze this stuff about about language. Like, you know, for example, there's uh, the word slut, but you re- very rarely hear that referred to as a man or you rarely hear a woman referred to as a genius, you know, that's almost always a male word. So the word motherfucker really interested me because it's a gendered word that doesn't have the the same word for, you know, there's no like daddy fucker or whatever. So that was also, you know, something I was exploring. And actually somebody said that they believed that the word, the origins of the word motherfucker was from slavery days, where that word started becoming like a word for the, you know, master coming and raping your mother. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, this is probably a good segue uh, into talking about your name. How did you choose your name? And do you view it as a reclamation of that denigrating Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, the older I get, the more I stand behind it. I mean, as you know, society has not softened, embraced much feminist ideology in the last 20 years that I've been you know, doing this. So it it feels just as urgent as ever. I mean, I hear that word get thrown around all the time in really condescending ways. But yeah, it was absolutely, it was a very similar thing. Animal kind of had this, we were trying to name ourselves, come up with a name for our art. And we kind of, Animal like said it as a joke. Well, you'd be bitch and I'd be Animal. And at first I was kind of offended (laughs) and then after a minute it was like well yeah that's a that's perfect because you know these are these are um archetypes that are definitely important to explore and as female people you know so yeah it's an absolute reclamation of the word bitch and what about the word bitch what is in that word that you're reclaiming it's definitely a word, you know, that you get, you hear women referred to when they're speaking their minds, when they're being quote unquote difficult, you know, raising issues that people maybe don't want to talk about, things like that. I mean, I was even thinking about it when you sent me your questions. I was thinking last night about, okay, you know, what are setbacks that I've felt just in the music world? And I always go to sound men. And sound men, and they're mostly men, that's why I'm calling them that, I mean, it's very rare that you get a sound woman, is a constant struggle because a lot of times you're treated like you don't know what you're doing, and you get very, you know, it's it's very, like, condescending talk towards you, you know, when you show up for your sound check. And then if you kind of not even assert yourself, but even if you show that you know what you're doing or say, you know, oh, I need you to boost those mids or whatever, 
you can easily get treated like now you're being a bitch. You know, like, oh, well, now you just think you know too much. Mm-hmm. And did you legally change it to bitch? Or No. No, you no. didn't. It's your nickname. Yeah. It's, it's your performance name. Do your close friends call you bitch when they're talking to you? <laughs> yes, a lot of them, especially ones that, you know, I've been friends with since, you know, in my from my young younger years in New York. Capital B or B is something that a lot of people will call me. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, I I thought about changing it legally, but because it's a swear word and because there's so much vitriol around it, it does get so awkward sometimes. Like if I if I had a nickel for every time I've gone to a party and introduce myself to somebody as bitch and then had to hear their joke about, yeah, well, I'm dick. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, just like the dumb jokes that always happen. And, you know, I, huh. there's just like social awkwardness that, that comes along with having a curse word. You know, so yeah, no, I never considered actually putting that on my driver's license because I thought that would attract unwanted attention from people in authority positions. Yeah, yeah, I can. You know what I mean? It's almost like a challenge to mess with yeah, me. Yeah, it is. With like, it, yeah. And I have a question going back to your music career. Did sure. you did you strive to play with male musicians, or did you feel more naturally inclined to pay, play with female musicians and be in the world of women's music? Or you know, what were your goals, and then how did you? strive for them and what actually happened to get you because when I think of your music I think your audience is primarily female you know was that on purpose or what what were your goals in your music career in terms of playing with men or not playing with men it's funny you know when I think about goals I think oh god maybe I should have thought about that 20 years ago or I think of my, you know, in my early days when Bitch and Animal was first starting, our goals were to spread the message, to open the minds and the ears of people who would listen. So it wasn't like a gender thing, but I know because we were singing so much about politics, about femaleness, about lesbianness, um, that I didn't even expect that, but it definitely closed doors. You know, on a certain level of like, well, it's not like you guys could tour with, I don't know, let's just say you too. You know what I mean? Just because our politics were so specific and so radical. So I just, I don't feel like it was part of the plan as far as like, ooh, we really want to say go. It's so funny because I can't stand you two, but for some reason that's the only male band that's coming to me right now. But it's not like we we're saying like, ooh, yeah, let's try to tour with them and then we couldn't it's just like it wasn't even part of that would have just never been an option based mm-hmm. on and it I still get into this thing where it's like I'm referred to as like a political artist and you know this kind of very niche thing which is true I am a political artist and people have told me many times like oh I think I don't think you should say that about yourself or say that about your work but you know that's always been why I've why I've chosen to do it is because, you know, there's like work to be done and minds to change and action to take. So 
that's always why I've been doing it. Otherwise, yeah. I would just sit at home and, you know, entertain my friends. So as far as goals, I mean, I also think that could be a, a girl thing, you know, I or maybe it was just like being a kid thing. I don't feel like we were sitting down and having goals necessarily. It was just like, okay, let's do this thing and see what happens kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And absolutely that we were embraced by women's music and the scene of, you know, queer women making incredible art. I mean, now in hindsight, of course, that makes total sense, but that wasn't like any part of the plan. It's just kind of who came in and scooped us up and loved us up and told us, you know, mm-hmm. we were appreciated and sang along. And Yeah. When did you first go to Mishfest and how many Mishfests did you go to total and how did you end up performing there? Let's see. You know, I don't know exactly how many I went to. I think either, tw- I think around 12 or 13. Mm. Um, Animal and I always wanted to play there. Uh, we went there um, with our roommate. The three of us went one time and camped out in the Twilight Zone and wanted to play there. And we had applied. We applied for three years in a row and finally got in on the third try. Yeah. And every year you'd play Pussy Manifesto, right? Pretty much? Pretty much, yeah. I think every year I would, yeah. Yeah, gosh. I, you just say Michigan and my, my heart breaks. Me too. You know about the We Want the Land Coalition, though, right? Yes. Now? Yep. Yeah. So it's going to be for women, by women, forever, I think is their slogan or something similar. I love it. Yeah, it's a great group of gals that's on the board of directors. So I feel confident that we shall return to the land for events, and it's going to be amazing. What are the main messages in your music that you are trying to get out there, you would say? Hmm. Well, I've always been, it's a, you know, of course, that stuff can fluctuate through the years and I, I am working on a new album right now that is maybe some new themes, but I think always I've always been exploring gender and gender identity, um, what it means to be female, what it means to, you know, live in this world with very strict, you know, gender roles laid out. Animal and I always, you know, we sang about you know, transgender issues, boy, girl, wonder, things about, you know, just rebelling against society's norms about what it is to be women. So that's always been a theme in my work. When you say you've sung about transgender issues, you're not coming from a place of being critical of transgenderism. Oh, no. I mean, no, not at all. For people, you know, finding their authentic selves or whatever that means, I mean, you know, that's, that's something that hanging out in the lesbian community has taught me over the years that there's like so many you know, the kids these days, they say gender nonconforming. It's like, man, these women like wrote the book, you know? I mean, my mind was blown open by the, the lesbian culture of, you know, what you think being a woman has to be and what, what we actually right. are. Right. Well, in today's lingo that I'm familiar with amongst feminists, 
gender nonconforming is not the same as transgender. Um, Absolutely. So, and yes, in the lesbian community, there are a lot of gender nonconforming women who know that they're female and embrace being female, and and that that is a key difference in having a transgender identity and and as opposed to being a woman, knowing your femaleness, and not wanting to conform to gender norm, norms and roles. Right, right. So, yeah, it's just, it gets to be such a, like, I don't know, like, word thing where you can just <laughs> get so tripped up on words and knowing what it is that you're talking about exactly. You know? Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And it's and it's and increasingly, I think, in recent years, it's just become more and more confusing. The more terms and terminology that gets thrown out there, largely by the transgender advocacy groups and community, and I, you know, I just can't keep up with it all, really. <laughs> so, <laughs> LGBTQIWTF, I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I I guess ultimately the bottom line of a lot of my work is rebelliousness, and that's something I've always celebrated, and I love that about my lesbian foremothers because, you know, the culture that created so much of, you know, the women's movement of the, you know, that built these festivals and everything is a rebellious spirit. So speak out. Next up, we'll hear excerpts from an interview Thistle did with Farron. Farron is a Canadian-born singer-songwriter and poet. In addition to gaining fame as one of Canada's most respected songwriters, Farron first became one of the most influential lyrical songwriters of the women's music circuit, and an important influence on later musicians, including Ani DiFranco, Mary Gaucher, and the Indigo Girls. From the mid-80s on, her songwriting talents have been recognized and appreciated by music critics and broader audiences, with comparisons made to the writing talents of Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, and Leonard Cohen. What role did music play in your childhood? Well, um, I was a loner, and uh, I suppose my, you know, my mother 
grew up in Alberta, and she loved country and western music. And then when the relatives would come around, the kind of the big highlight of of the event was that in the evening, you know, they'd all get out the guitars and the clogs and the scrub boards and all that stuff, and they'd just play music. My mother came from a family of 13, and they would sing and sing harmonies, and we were poor, so there was a lot of stress in the family, and I found that when we were playing music, you know, all the stress was gone. And so when I got a little older, I, I pulled down a guitar. I had a, I mean, there was, it was an awkward, it was a painful childhood, to tell you the truth. And so at one point, maybe when I was about 11, I had an ulcer, and I didn't know that then. But um, I found that if I put this little guitar against my, my body and I would just hit a string, that the vibrations going through the body of the guitar would just sort of soothe my stomach. So um, I started to try to learn to play the guitar for that reason, and also I probably thought I I could win my mother's love or something. You know, I'm sure that was in there to impress her. So uh, I started trying to play the guitar. I mean, I had no schooling. I I didn't. I saw the places my mother put her fingers, so I would try those. I probably had three or four chords that I would try to work with. And um, so it began. So music, for me, even from the time that I was young, like when I was in, in junior high school, I didn't really have any friends, and I was very shy. And so I would go into the music room and go back into the rehearsal room, which was a double, double wall thing. Nobody could hear me. Nobody could see me. And I would try to learn how to play the guitar. And... Mostly what I remember from that is that, and maybe a lot of people don't know it, but to train your fingers on the steel strings meant a lot of pain, a lot of, um, you were trying to build up these calluses so that you wouldn't feel it, but then when you first start out, the calluses fall off, and so then you've got this really fresh skin, and you have to do it again, and you have to keep building these these calluses, any guitar player will tell you about it, until they're just sort of inside of your finger, which which mine finally got there, and then I could play, and I wasn't bleeding everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So did you have any guitar instructors at all that would come into that space, or were you completely alone in learning to play the guitar? And would you listen to recordings and play along with the recordings? No. I'm sorry. I mean, I didn't even know. I mean, it was a flop in music class and everything like that. I I used that room to to still to still my nerves, to still my nervousness. I mean, it was a very stressful childhood, and I didn't care if I only played two chords. It was just hearing them, hearing them, hearing them, so that I could hear the. What I understand now is that what I was feeling was the nuance between, you know, two strings vibrating against each other. And I think that helped me a lot when I was older and was writing because I I could hear uh, music inside of music. So then when Driver came out, Testimony and Driver and, you know, Turning It, I mean, those are the kind of records that I want to make. I had an idea about making music that would be 
um, a comfort for, for well, just like the guitar has been a comfort to my pain. I wanted my whole album to be a comfort and and an insight into what caused our pain. You know, all that's what I was exploring. I didn't exactly know. I didn't have the answers. I was exploring it. Mm-hmm. So then when Driver came out, then once again, I can't remember how it happened. It might still be Earthbeat again, but I got linked to Warner Brothers and uh, very, very scared of that whole thing. Um, I can remember saying to my then manager, you know, there's no big daddy in the sky, you know. I mean, I just felt this was going to be uh, something, just a whitewash again. But, boy, they're smarter up there in the big business, you know. Not by then, I have a baby, and, you know, I'd come to L.A. for the meetings, and they'd rent me a car that had a baby seat in it, and he promised me security, and, you know, a lot of promises were made, lots of promises. And now I'm nervous again because I have a child, and, you know, I want to make all the right decisions instead of being you know, me, which is like I'm walking away from this and I don't care if I don't have a cent kind of person. So I got hooked in. And, I mean, the irony of the whole thing is that the schedule they had me on, you know, helped to ruin my relationship and my connection to the baby. So the whole thing was just a big shit pot. So they didn't have any... I wanted the distribution, right? Because it's very hard when you're alone, making the record, making the jacket, you know, flying in all the artists, paying for everything. I mean, Driver was paid for on those zero credit, zero interest cards, and it just kept moving them around, you know, to pay for it, because it cost like almost $60,000, you know. That's a lot of money. And um, I could have bought a house for that. But we were we invested in it. So, uh you know, it's just the same old story. Businesses make money whether they make money or whether they lose money. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, even though we brought out Still Riot, which probably hardly anybody has ever paid attention to, I mean, I to me it was a very important CD, but maybe only to me. That's how it seems. So um, in the end, they didn't have distribution, and I went in and talked to the, the head of Warner Brothers, the executive, my guy, whatever, and he's like, yeah, distribution's kind of hard when you're just starting out. And I was shocked. I looked at him because I remembered that his first line to me when we met was, how come I haven't heard of you and you've been around for 20 years? So why was he now telling me distribution is hard when you're just starting out? So it was a it was a bust, you know. They got access to Testimony, Shadows, and Phantom Center in which probably they're selling them in Europe and we'll never know about it, and back then especially. And, um, you know, then I was gone. So that ended in 97. Then I was crushed and uh, broken, and it took about seven years for me to even dare go near music. My band and I, we, we just all went home. Nobody talked. We didn't talk for seven years. And then... One day, Donnie, my my lovely producer from Driver, and still Ryan and everything, he he called me and he said, you know, let's make a record. And so we pulled everybody back together and made Turning Into Beautiful. And, um, you know, it was very healing. 
in your house studio? Yeah, in on Saturna in a um an old uh 1880s farmhouse that you know it had it had its own problems but I think turning into beautiful turned out really beautiful. I mean the problem would be like it had a tin roof so if it rained we couldn't record. <laughs> We're in the northwest, you know. So it took a little time. <laughs> it was really a good thing to do, and it brought us all back together. Now we're all back together, you know. It's like in the end, you just have to keep the outside world at bay if you want to preserve the inside, which I knew when I was 10, you know, and I had to relearn it, relearn it, relearn it until finally, you know, I'm 40 and I've got it. So so that was that. I mean, I just don't really uh, bother anymore with anything like that. That was my foray into the business world, and that sort of did it. So music, the great healer, music, the calmer down or the, the, you know, the way to find the peace and love in our heart <laughs> turned into this, you know, nitpicking, penny counting, you know, contractual insults and everything. And, you know, I mean, they even tried to divide my band from me. And, you know, their dream was that I would be on my own and I would fire all these guys and gals that I'd worked with for years and that I loved. I mean, without it, I don't, I'm no good. I don't want to be around strangers, you know. Mm -hmm. I would have, I mean, if I suppose if I'd have followed them, I would have had Osborne's career. You know, she had some great, great songs, and I watched her parallel rise right right beside my uh, fall. And um, I was with a guy at Warner Brothers who had Bonnie Lee, Joni Mitchell, um, what's her name from up north? Fiercer. I can't remember what her name was. It was an odd name. Um, I mean, every woman that you could imagine that you ever liked were under um, this executive producer. He was actually the executive music for Warner Brothers. Big mm -hmm. shot. And, you know, so I guess they all had a hope, but I wouldn't... Uh, there was something inside of me that I think I think he thought I was just rebellious, but uh, there was some kind of integrity line. My definition of my integrity was inside of me, and it couldn't be it could be shoved, but it couldn't be budged. And there came a day when I was with Warner Brothers, and he said, "How?" And now little affair is going on. So you know we're working and working, and there's no CDs out there and everything. And then he says, "How would you like to play little affair?" Well, who wouldn't want to play Little Fair when that was happening? So I said, wow, that, that would be fantastic. But guess where they wanted me? They wanted me by the gate, the entrance gate, where people buy their tickets, and I was going to be on a little platform like a monkey um, singing there while the Indigo Girls and uh, Sarah McLaughlin and Ani DeFranco or whoever, anybody who knew me, was all going to be on the main stage. And huh. it, it just so happened that the week before, there had been an article in the Rolling Stone talking about um, some other big thing that was going on where they put Ricky Lee Jones down on a floor, ground-level stage to play a song in between set changes for what was going on on the big, on the big stage. And... The writing, the writer said, that was a shame, that was wrong, 
you know, and how did they ever get Ricky Lee Jones to do that? So then, a week later, when he asked me to play that final stage, I said, I can't do it. Now, mind you, I have to tell you, the guy that was was my executive was gay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm lesbian, and he asked me to play that little stage, and I said, I can't do it. It was I was terrified to say that. You know, it's like talking back to daddy or something, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just, I stammered and I just said, I can't do it. And he looks at me and he goes, you can't do it. And I said, I can't. And he wanted to know why. I said, because I'm a lesbian and I don't want lesbians to see me isolated out of everything because the Indigo Girls weren't out yet, everything. You know, standing on a small stage at the entrance of a fucking little affair. I mean, can anybody understand that besides me? So he was really angry, and and that was sort of the beginning of the end. So then that write-up of little affair comes out in the Village Voice, I think it was, and I'm reading it, I'm bitter, I'm sad, I'm confused and everything. And can you believe it? But at the end, what does he say? Where was Farron? And that was like such a redemptive thing to read. This next song goes out to Thistle and the women in Bleeders and to every woman men have tried to silence or shape to fit their needs and to every woman who has spoken out and sung her heart out anyway. This is Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken by Pink. Speak. 
Happy holidays to all of our WLRN listeners. Does that special someone you are sharing this season with need a turf shirt? We've got them in gray, black, and red in all sizes. They are only available for a few more days. On December 10th, we will close our pre orders, so make sure you order now. Hey Sally, how's it going, sister? Not too well. I'm bummed about all the mudslinging online and tired of being called a turf all the time by trans activists. I know what you mean. The bullying has really gotten out of hand. I wonder what we could do about it. Hmm. Hey, I know. Have you heard about WLRN's new turf t-shirts that say, if you call any woman a turf, you are a misogynist? They're designed by Nidra Johnson and are pretty rad. We can take that term and turn it around. I could never wear a shirt like that. It would just cause them to come after me even more. I understand. But what about wearing it at Radfem gatherings around the house or, hey, I know, what about wearing it to a Radfem slumber party as your pajamas? Ooh, I want to go. I want to go to a Radfem slumber party and wear my turf shirt. Yes, that sounds like it would be really cathartic and good for me to get one of those shirts and host a slumber party with my gal pals. Thanks for cheering me up, sister. How do I get a shirt? It's easy. When you donate $20 or more to WLRN for them to continue the awesome collective media work they're doing, just indicate the size and color of the shirt you'd like when you make your donation, and they'll send you the shirt after enough pre-orders have been received. Cool. How do I make my donation? Just go to the WLRN WordPress site and click on the T-shirts tab, and all the instructions are there. Thanks, sister. Can't wait to get my turf shirt and to support Women's Community Radio. You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation Radio Radio News. News. regular show at the neighborhood bar. People would come from near and far and it was fun until it wasn't when the bullies came in the dozens to tear me down. 
posters too They had quite a crew that brought me down Held up a sign that said, don't believe the hype Transactivism is misogyny, alright And for that, they got me fired I can't believe what's transpired in this town Oh, Madison I am done Oh, Madison I'm still here When I think of music I wish I thought of comfort or spirit-rousing freedom, healing and dancing. But on my bad days, I think of high school. And when I think of high school, I think of Grease, the musical movie with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. Starring as heterosexual teenagers who sing and dance a lot among a bunch of other straight teens who do the same. I had my own high school experience with music, dance, and theatrical musicals coming of age in the 1980s. What is depicted in the movie Grease from a generation earlier is not much different than what I experienced as a teen girl trying to be popular, liked, and someday famous so that I would truly be loved and recognized for my talents. But song and dance, the melody, harmony, and rhythms of daily existence do not belong to women to express freely. We are allowed to express our song and dance under patriarchy, mostly when we are sex objects for the male gaze and male power. At least, this is the rule and not the exception, and certainly, being that way pays better. In Greece, the bands featured at Rydell High were made up of primarily males. Some of the featured bands were made up of only males. The movie is set in the 1950s, though it was made in the 70s. Teenagers worldwide still come of age with this movie, and while listening to music that glorifies male musicians and subordinates female ones. My public high school was similar to Rydell High, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is similar to most public high schools today. What I noticed growing up when it comes to popular music is that it is mostly men up on stage as the musicians playing instruments and the women, if they're at all, are all dolled up and in supportive roles to the men. This has not changed much since I graduated from high school in 1986. You can go to almost any bar with live music in Madison and the band will be made up primarily of men or only men and nobody calls it men's music, they just call it music because it is assumed that men are the real citizens and players in society. So no need to point out that it is male dominated. If there is a band made up only of women, you can be sure people will notice and refer to the band as an all-girls band. One of the things most infuriating about the trans activist attacks on my music career in Madison is that they successfully got me and my band fired from a local venue that had three bands, including mine, that played a regular show there once a month. The names of those three bands were up on the marquee outside of the venue. Of the three regularly scheduled bands, only mine had a female performer in it, me. Yet most vocal locals cannot seem to see how this was clearly a case of sexist discrimination against a female musician for having some opinions about how patriarchy works in our society. The fact that I was the only monthly scheduled female performer at that local venue did not enter the minds of the people trying to get me fired for my supposed hateful bigotry. I had worked hard to get that show and was getting a following and making progress and then blammo! 
Because I carried a sign at the Women's March some misogynists were offended by. I don't get to have a show at the local music venue anymore. And I always wonder if I am blacklisted at other venues that normally would have let me play. But getting back to my childhood, I got the message early on, probably when I was 12 or so, that women can be backup singers or play the tambourine alongside a male singer-songwriter of any genre or style, but that we are not well-suited to be the front musician running our own band or creating bands of creatives with other women. This cultural and socialized norm messed up my confidence regarding my ability to write songs, play them well on an instrument, and perform them as the leader of my own band among my peers, male or female. And that's just it. Men are not our peers. They are our masters in what is mistakenly misnamed the public realm. Because if it were truly a commons and a realm shared equally by all, women would not usually be in the supportive or ornamental role serving our male counterparts. I didn't quite get this as a teenager. I thought I would be or could be accepted as a peer in the company of boys. I thought I could be a musician who rocked out on the guitar just like the boys, but somehow I didn't know how to play in the boy bands and they didn't recruit me and I didn't know how to form a band with just girls. So I played solo on my guitar and admired and had crushes on the musicians in the male bands. I feel like those crushes were more about my envy of their power to play and less about real attraction to them as people when I look back on it now. I had crushes on the male musicians both in bands at my high school and on men like Sting and Paul Simon. While in graduate school, I had the opportunity to take an interdisciplinary upper-level feminist theory course with a bunch of women from departments all around my school, the University of Michigan. Though I was studying medieval Spanish literature, I was permitted to do my paper topic on the life and music of Ani DeFranco, and yeah, did I learn a lot about women in music by penning that piece. In the paper, I quote from Rock She Wrote, edited by Evelyn McDonnell and Ann Powers, published in 1995 from their compilation on female teenage groupies of male bands. The basic thesis of that collection is that the girls who are adoring worshippers of male rock stars actually want to be up on stage themselves as musicians, poets, songwriters, and artists, but do not have the access nor the outlet under patriarchy unless they compromise their dignity. I was groomed to be a groupie and to trust that men who viewed me as a sex object actually would care about my songwriting and music, which, as it played out in my own life, they did not care about me as a musician other than to sing backup for their center role on stage or to sing lead, but without playing an instrument. As a teenager, I remember wondering what was wrong with me that I couldn't just jump up there with the fellas, play along on the bass or maybe the drum kit or whatever. It all just seemed so off limits to me and mysterious and there were no players like me. A girl. They were all boys until some of my female friends became backup singers for some of the boys groups when we were seniors. They wore sexy cute outfits, something I wasn't willing to do, and I remember gazing up at them at a school dance admiring their dance moves that went with the songs but also feeling like something was wrong that they were in the background and in the outfits they were wearing. While still in my teens, I didn't understand that being in public and participating as a singer-songwriter meant that I would do it as a woman and not as men's social peer. I always felt like I was lesser than my male counterparts, but never could understand why. 
I mean, actually, why wouldn't I understand it? It's like, shit. I think I did understand it. There were no females anywhere as role models or peers in my life anyway. I remember asking my guitar teacher when I was 16 how come the boys could play guitar better than girls. She told me I, did, I shouldn't let them fool me. She said the only way they got good is by lots of practice. Her words helped me to practice more without feeling bad about myself. What I did was I just played and played and played just for myself to soothe myself in my late 20s and early 30s. I wrote songs, found ways to record them in quality, and made whole albums of original music. It felt good, and it was. You can hear my recorded music and original songs online at thistlemadison.com and even buy digital downloads of my albums. But getting back to my early years, before I had written enough songs to make an album and before I had recorded my work and also before I became more confident on the guitar, I remember one night, after a fit of torturous self-doubt and negative judgment, I finally sat down and gave myself permission to just play whatever I wanted to play, but just play something. So with my hands hanging below my tear-stained face, I played one string and I heard it as a note and then as a one-note melody. That night I discovered all of music comes from the sounds around and in us and that everything is musical and that even one note played with feeling and purpose can be a song. This was such a relief. All I really wanted to do was play and I never felt good enough or like I had what it was that was needed to play the guitar. The one note song experience helped me with self-acceptance and compassion for the wounded teenager inside, who by no fault of her own was born into a harsh system that treats music as a commodity and women as whores instead of fellow musicians. The vibration of the guitar strings became a healing salve that nurtured my soul and confidence to just play. It took a long time and definitely longer than it would have if I had been born male, but I did it. There is so much joy in just making a joyful sound. I also remember learning, finally, how to change the strings on my guitar, but I had to go to a male-dominated guitar shop to learn because it was the only one within biking distance from my apartment. This was before YouTube how-to videos, so there really were fewer options for how to learn your instrument in those days. But even today, in doing a quick YouTube search with the keywords, change your guitar strings, all of the first 10 instructional videos that come up feature male teachers. Upwards of 98% of the people in that guitar shop back in the 90s were male, and almost all of the pictures on the walls portrayed male musicians, and in most of the books, the stories and lessons featured were from men. This is why I loved the Michigan Women's Music Festival so much as a female musician. It was so not about men when we gathered and listened to the greatest musicians of our times like Nietzsche Johnson, Chris Matthews, and Farron. It was about us and by us as a separate society from male society. I hope my story today helps women to feel and grow the confidence and self-love that will propel us to be the great musicians and artists that we are for our own sake and for the enjoyment of it, not for money and not for fame. 
Music belongs to women. Women belong to music. We have the right to music by and for women without the pressures and injustices of the male music biz. So moving along to social movement building, song is a powerful weapon in the fight against male domination and male rule. It is a healing salve for the wombs of male hatred on our soul and so potent that feminist musicians are blocked, banned, shunned, and ostracized because we are reaching into the hearts and minds of people who are scared to stand up to the way things have always been in our lifetimes and in the lifetimes of our mothers, grandmothers, and great-grandmothers. Too many prefer to remain in the status quo for fear of being ridiculed and suffering the backlash that feels inevitable if you speak out. But what is the alternative? What will silence and going along to get along achieve for us in the long run? The answer is nothing, sisters, or maybe crumbs from the table of patriarchy thrown at us by our masters. Who wants to live that way? Why do women take it? This weapon and this salve music is ours to use and enjoy if we just stop caring what male supremacists think. But I understand so much of male supremacy is carried out by women. Just look at China and the patriarchal tradition of feet binding. It is mothers who bind the feet of their daughters. In the world of music, I discovered from firsthand experience that it is women who throw other women under the bus. The women musicians in Madison will hardly talk with me let alone play with me. My only option at this point, if I want to play with others, is to play with men. One of the leaders of Girls Rock Camp, a national group that has local chapters all over America with the goal of supporting female musicianship, invited me out for coffee after I signed up for a weekend called Ladies Rock Camp for Adults. She wanted to know about my feminist beliefs. Thinking it was a friendly conversation, I just went ahead and told her my thoughts and feelings. I have never heard from her again. Where are the women musicians in the Madison area who are not afraid to speak out, who are not afraid to play music with the woman burnt at the stake? My heart cries out to you. We need each other. We need to fulfill the mission of organizations like Girls Rock Camp without fear, bowing, and making excuses. We need to truly care about women in music. Tus manos, mi fu- 
pequeno tchanô O pela tchau, bela tchau, bela tchau, tchau, tchau És mi deseo seguir luchando Por la liberación mundial Soy anarquista toda la vida O pela tchau, bela tchau, bela tchau, tchau, tchau Soy anarquista Twitch around their eyes until 
concludes WLRN's Edition 20 on Women in Music, produced by Jenna DeQuarto with tender, loving care. Thanks for joining us. I'm Sekhmet Shiaul. And I'm Thistle Patterson. If you'd like to get in touch with WLRN, please contact us at wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. And don't forget, check out the t-shirt tab on our website for the perfect holiday gift to give to any feminist in your life. WLRN would like to thank our interviewees for giving us their time and wisdom for this edition. We'd also like to thank all of the artists who submitted their designs to our t-shirt contest. And now, without further ado, I will announce the winner. Drumroll, please. The winner of WLRN's very first t-shirt contest is Casey Mills. Casey is a lesbian radical feminist and professional graphic designer. She enjoys using art for things that matter and has a soft spot for all cats, some dogs, and things that pass the Bechtel test. WLRN is partnering with a woman-owned print shop to supply Casey with one free t-shirt of her own design. Thank you, Casey, and thanks again to all of our amazing listeners who submitted their own designs. Each submission will be posted on our website to showcase each woman's wonderful works. This is Julia Beck, wishing you a lovely December. And I'm Amanda. Be sure to tune in for WLRN's next edition on gynocentric societies throughout history, coming out in the new year on January 4th, 2018. We want you to know that we're grateful for you and your support. I'm Sarah, over and out. WLRN wishes all of our listeners and women everywhere a happy holiday season and a happy 2018. This is Jenna DeQuarto, WLRN's Soundmaster-in-Chief, signing off for now. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? Gender hurts.